This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. And hello if you're listening to the show as a podcast. At some other time of the day, a big thank you to Triple R's favourite koala, Phoebe Squared, for the past three hours of music on maps. If you're listening to the last half hour of the show, that reference will make sense to you. Good. Um, and a big hello and welcome to my co-host for the evening. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm joined by regular... Players Cave co-host Cerise Held and our regular special guest co-host Hayley Inch. Hello to you both. Ah, good evening, good evening. Good evening. How much fun was Radiothon last week? It was so much fun, I think we're still all, like, residually exhausted. I think we're all trying to catch our breath. We're going to thank you again to everybody who subscribed. Thank you to everybody who listened. You know, it's, it's, it is a crazy show that we do during Radiothon where we sort of talk free form and we talk randomly and we ask you to become a subscriber. But I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, you can still become a subscriber to this remarkable station. And if you pay up by 5pm on Wednesday, September the 28th, uh, you get to go into the running for all the prizes. So, you know, do drop by the station, do... Do call 93881027 during office hours. We don't have the huge team of volunteers tonight, so, you know, we can't take your call at the moment. You know what's really easy is you jump online. Go to rrr.org.au. But let's sink our teeth into some, into some film criticism. Uh, on tonight's show, we're going to look at three films, all by filmmakers making their debuts as feature film directors, despite having significant prior experience working in the entertainment industry. We're going to be looking at the American animation Kubo and the Two Strings, a fantasy adventure set in mythical ancient Japan, as well as the New Zealand documentary Tickled about the world of competitive endurance tickling, which turns out to be not as light-hearted as the filmmakers initially believed. But first, Indignation. This is the directorial debut of James Shemus, co-founder of the production company Good Machine and CEO of Focus Features. Uh, he is best known for his creative partnership with director... Ang Lee, uh, having produced and written many of Lee's films over more than two decades now. Indignation is an adaptation of Philip Roth's 2008 novel of the same name. It's primarily set in a small college in, I in Ohio in 1951. Having avoided being drafted for the Korean War, Marcus Messner is a young man from a working-class Jewish family in New Jersey who has come to the prestigious school to pursue academic and intellectual pursuits. His atheist beliefs put him into conflict with the school's dean and his strong attraction for Olivia, a fellow student, puts him into conflict with pretty much everybody around him who do not approve of her. His own reactions to her are also questionable and much of the film is concerned with him trying to overcome internal and external prejudices as double standards... Uh, his own internal and external prejudices and double standards in an era of heavy conservatism... Hayley, both you and I have been along to see this film at, at, at separate points. What did you make of Indignation? Yeah, it's interesting. This is the kind of film where I kept describing it as kind of almost like an old school prestige picture, like the kind of thing that you would get, you know, tilting at the Oscars, you know, often in the 90s, you know, those kind, kind of, of Oscar like baby pictures, Oscar baby yeah. type of pictures where they're often based on... on uh, 
on literary works, there tend to be, you know, period pieces and the period settings tend to be very lush and very acutely realised where you kind of sink into these worlds of, of high costume and, and high setting and that sort of thing. And generally they also tend to be films where you get quite a few meaty performances going around, particularly for young up-and-coming actors who kind of want to prove their mettle with, you know, something nice and wordy and, and emotional and that sort of thing. And those kind of films are really far few and few and far between these days I mean I think it's very hard for a young actor in America to make your name doing something that's not superhero or franchise movies so it's kind of interesting that to see young actors like Logan Lerman who who, who plays Marcus and Sarah Gadden who plays uh, Olivia them clearly you know really really enjoying getting their teeth and claws into this really kind of um un, un, unusually meaty material from hollywood i think cable television has kind of filled that gap it really has that, that's where the sort of the the, the adult dramas and then now now dominate Mm, exactly. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear from, from your perspective, Thomas, are, are, are these the sort of films that you tend to enjoy or do you find them a little bit snoozy? Yeah, I, I tend... Well, for a start, I don't think this is quite the typical prestige picture thing. Um, but it's, that, it's disguised as one. Yeah, yeah, I think it is very cunningly disguised as one. It has the veneer of a, of a more kind of worthy, straightforward... You know, period drama. I mean, they're, they're films I, I tend to enjoy to a degree and find, uh, you know, very disposable. And yeah, I mean, Shakespeare in Love is kind of the ultimate example, I suppose, of this kind of thing. But it, it, yeah, there's even sort of worthier films, most of which I, I can't even tell you the title of any of them right now. But I think everyone has an idea of what we mean by the Oscar Beatty worthy period drama prestige film what, what i really like about this one is def- definitely has that veneer but i think there are some extraordinary subtleties going on under the surface that make it very difficult to to dismiss like this this is a film um very heavy with uh uncertainty about how the characters are reacting and how we as the audience are resp- supposed to respond as well and there's a lot of information about the character's past especially Olivia's character that's not explicit but we get a few kind of hints about what has led her to where she is now and yeah you're very much encouraged to try to fill the blanks in yourself to then question why you're filling in the blanks the way you are to question how you feel about it to question his response to her and and I actually really quite enjoyed that that um Almost, almost rigor in in very sophisticated storytelling. And this this film, I didn't ha- I didn't leave this film with the kind of sense of calm, kind of nourishment. I left this film feeling really furious in a very good way. I mean, I think that's the point of the film. Really, really angry about what happens to the characters in the film, and then drawing connections to contemporary society and realizing that a lot of the issues they're exploring in this film, in terms of double standards and. Um, well, it, look, it's, it's well, basically it's slut shaming what, what we see in this film. Not, you know, and it's, this is early nineteen fifties America. It doesn't feel like a hell of a lot has changed. I think this is a really good film. <laughs> Yeah, it's got. I'd, I'd similarly. I, I came out not not so much angry, but I was yeah very quietly devastated because the end of the film really creeps up on you in terms of the actual ultimate consequences of these things that you see portrayed in the film, which seems small at the time, but they all just keep building one on top of the other, and I think the pacing of this film is really quite extraordinary. And also, just to go back of the idea that, you know, that this film is is, is a, essentially about slut-shaming, I was actually really impressed with the way that the film dealt with 
it's it, it's female characters. Mm. Like I feel like uh, Sarah Gadden's role in particular could have really, really easily been a very flat. Um, stereotypical oh the crazy girlfriend who gets him into trouble role but I, I feel like the writing in particular and her performance is very very um focused on ensuring that she's she's given space to be a person and that her experiences are valid and her opinions are valid and the way that people treat her is actually quite awful and prejudgy and that that she she has this whole life behind her that she's experienced that you know it, 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 everyone's just kind of willing to use to you know scarlet letter her essentially and and say that she's already damaged goods and she's only about 19 years old and yeah yeah and yeah different characters have different attitudes to why she's damaged goods but they all kind of conclude that she's uh, bad news and and, and even marcus is troubled by aspects of her i just you know there's a very pivotal scene We, we won't give it away but but his response i think embodies so much contradiction about the way and i'm speaking very broadly here but the way men expect women to behave it's sort of and it's completely contradictory to each other you know, men want women to be sexual, and yet we also don't like them being too much out of their out of their place, and we like to to, 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 to control that sphere. And I think this film portrays that in a in a you know really impressive way. Mm, it's really fascinating, and yeah, I do find it very interesting that a man like James Sharmas, who's who's been in the industry for like thirty years, this is the thing that he's he's kind of pinned down as 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 his directorial debut. And I'm just kind of like, well, if we had to wait thirty years for that, it, it was well worth the wait, really. <laughs> It's an odd little film. It's yeah. not even a major Philip Roth novel either. It's no. one of the later ones. It's not one of the more well-known ones. It's a curious little project, but obviously he was very drawn to it. I mean, I believe that it's a world Philip Roth grew up in, even though it's not directly autobiographical, and um, and the director has also said it's a world he, he, he knows as well. Mm-hmm. I One of the biggest mysteries I have about Hollywood and filmmaking at the moment is why Sarah Gaddon is not a super star. Like I, I, I think she's astonishing. I mean, she, she's done a lot of films with David Cronenberg over the past few years. She's sort of became one of his regular actors. Mm-hmm. She was in Cronenberg's son's film, and um, I mean, I mean, maybe that's the thing. She pops up in really interesting, um, sort of yeah, f- films with really meaty roles. But um, yeah, I think she's an astonishing performer. Um, she kind of has this Grace Kelly quality. I don't want to get too gross and kind of fawning her if over here, but she has remarkable screen presence, and she's a very strong actor who picks really interesting roles. So. Definitely, like it, it, <laughs> pretty much every time she's on screen in this film, like you're you're really arrested by her, yep. and and it, it it takes some effort because I think Logan Lerman also does a, a really good job here as well. Like I I hadn't seen him in anything before this. Apparently, he's also been in Perks of a Wallflower and the Percy Jackson films and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I've seen stuff he's in, but I've, mm. I've never been aware of him. Yeah, you kind of like haven't been like um. Uh, uh, tapped on the shoulder by him at all, but in this, he's he's quite excellent. And yeah, Sarah again, I've I've read a couple of interviews with her where she's like, essentially said she's not looking to do the, you know, she doesn't want to do the franchises, she doesn't want to do the blockbusters, she wants to do the serious films with interesting directors, and it's directors that get her interested in projects and want to work with people. So yeah, I don't think she's going to do any kind of stereotypical um, star climbing anytime soon, yeah, if, well, if, if her interviews are to be believed. Yeah, all for the better, because every time I see a film with her in, I'm very impressed. Um, and this is a really good cast overall. I mean, I think Tracy Letts, we should also mention, who plays the Dean in this film, who um, who's also a remarkable writer. I mean, you look at some of the... He, he wrote um, uh, films like Bugs, which was a great... Was it William Friedkin who did yeah, the yeah, presentation? Yeah. And... Um, um, that one with the fried chicken that horrified people oh, with Matthew God, McConaughey. Killer Joe. Killer Joe. Oh. 
Oh, you were traumatised by that I was traumatised by that. I remain traumatised by that. I adored the wrongness of that film. But um, it's just worth mentioning, for a film that I think works with a lot of subtlety and ambiguity, um, there are a couple of pivotal scenes involving uh, the the, the Dean and and Marcus that are incredibly talky. And I've heard heard a few people dismiss this as being overly theatrical, these scenes. And I think... Mm. It's not overly theatrical. We're just not used to scenes in films anymore where people actually have really long, intense conversations. Exactly. There's and those d- moments in this film are riveting. It's amazing. There's one pivotal sequence in the middle, which is basically the first time that Marcus's character meets the Dean, and it's like 18 minutes of them just, like, politely and then less politely <laughs> arguing with each other about things like faith and, and relationships and things like that. And it's the sort of thing where I was kind of seeing they're just going, like, I can't remember the last time a film kind of built itself around these sort of scenes where characters are actually, yeah, having big, long conversations with each other. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a real pleasure to, to be in the moment for those films. So, so you, you overall, you sound oh, like you're on the yeah, same page I, as me. I, I definitely enjoyed it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit like, I love those prestige things. I love a period uh, drama. But I do love it when you come across one and you're kind of expecting the pleasures of that and you get something a lot more meatier and something a lot more to 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 say about itself through that medium and yeah. that's nice i liked how tricksy this film was the king's speech there's ah. that's the iconic i mean that, that's a classic example of <laughs> that's the a good highly prestige enjoyable film. prestige yeah film. which is which is great yeah. but yeah i think indignation is doing something a little bit more subtle and a little mm, more totally. clever than, than the typical period uh prestige mm. piece I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it three triple Kubo and the Two Strings is the new feature film by Leica Entertainment, an, an American stop-motion animation studio whose previous films have been Coraline, Paranorman and The Box Trolls. It is, a, it is the directorial debut of Travis Knight, who worked on the previous Leica films as the lead animator. Set in a mythical ancient Japan, Kubo is a young boy who has the ability to animate origami figures while playing his shamisen, a three-stringed Japanese musical instrument. Kubo lives with his mother and entertains the local villagers by telling the story of his father, a samurai warrior named Hanzo who died protecting him and his mother from Kubo's evil aunts and grandfather. When these evil family members once again come after him, Kubo goes on a quest to find his father's armour, which will help him to defend himself. Along the way, he's aided and fights against a variety of magical creatures. Cerise. Thomas. You, you, you saw this the most recently, I think. You I called did. this film this morning. This morning in a cinema all to myself, uh, which was wonderful, actually, because it's an extremely dreamlike experience, this film. It's... it's one of the most exquisitely animated films I have ever seen. A beautiful combination of traditional stop motion and uh, animatronics and some old school stuff, but then lovely CG backgrounds and other sort of textures and so on. And it's beautiful. But we, we expect that from this studio. Um, who, I didn't see Paranorman. I knew, I know you loved it, Thomas. So I heard generally yeah. uniformly great things about it. But I do remember Coraline very fondly and see certain motifs from that film carried on into this, especially. Uh, eyes imperiled. Uh, I think it was all about having eyes buttoned up in Coraline, wasn't it? Wasn't that was? What oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. yes. Here, the main character Kubo begins the narrative with just the one eye, and is at, at risk throughout of losing the other too. It's just a curious thing. But that's a, a very cinematic anxiety that goes back to the olden times. And think of Unshin Andalu, yeah, Unwell exactly. and Dali's 
famous eye-slitting scene. That trauma to the eye is so prevalent in Which, cinema. interestingly, combines the moon with uh, eye damage, just like it does in this, where the moon... What was what was he called? The big baddie's the moon... Oh, he's the moon king. The moon king is the one who wants his eye. Just a curious thing. Maybe it's a little doff of a cap to cinematic precursors. Who knows? It's too perfect to be coincidental, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, <laughs> I... I found a tremendous amount to love in this film it washed over me the imagery is is gorgeous and the the plot is quite unpredictable and this this rush of uh stunningly animated uh, imagery and peculiar narrative twists uh, i found completely transfixing uh if not problematic in one sense and which is which is i i know you're both going to pile in on this as well i just sense it but uh for what is basically a story very rich in japanese folklore and mythology it's all very Americanized. All the, the cast, uh, Hollywood actors, all, with the exception of Rafe Fiennes, uh, and there was the one major um, uh, bit of Asian voice talent. Oh, uh, George Takai. Yeah. Oh, the, the, and well, see, thing. The, the lead cast are all American yeah, or English. Yeah, the, the supporting yeah. cast is mostly Japanese speaking. Yeah, Asian American yeah. speaking English. But, but really, that's quite peripheral. You could say, really, to the, yes. the real drama here, which is focuses on Kubo and. Sort of a, a a coming of age, you could say, but without any sort of sexual connotations mm. there. But just finding his way in the world, uh, but in a, a way which tries to, uh, it's, it's a, I suppose it's very steeped in Japanese mythology. But with this life and the possibility of afterlives and connections between the the spiritual world and the the material world, um, yeah, look. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous film. But that, that one problematic area is going to stick with me because when I hear a voice like Matthew McConaughey's deal, uh, voicing this sort of material, it, it's a, a little incongruous, to say the least. But nonetheless, uh, I, I was utterly spellbound by this. It's one of the really curious details I found with this film, and I'll say up the front, I adored this. I, I think it will be in my favourite films of the year list. Yeah, probably I, I mine too. Absolutely adored this film. Um, he's, yeah, you're right. The, the 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 narrative unfolds in a very unconventional way. You don't see where it's coming. It gets very dark at times. It gets genuinely scary. Although I've seen it with a large child audience who are fine with the film. Yeah. That the the moments of humour are very unexpected and played really nicely to relieve tension. Um, but the the re- very unusual dyna- dynamic is that the threat is family and it's this idea that you know your family by default are not always good people and i think that's quite a sophisticated idea that um that you know it, it, for so long the narrative to children has been stranger danger and i think you know a lot of that has changed recently when we've realized that so much abuse and assault on children comes from from the home in the community which is an appalling reality but um if we focus on this reality we can look after children better and i think the this film echoes that to an extent that that the villains are from the family what's also suggesting though that no one is simply good or evil they might be a closer to one pole than the other at any given time but they might oscillate and this film's very, very i think it's quite sophisticated the way it manages that sort of uh, dialectic the mm. good and evil it's not simple uh and and that's what kubo has to to grapple with um uh, yeah, yeah. I love the way the films aimed, aimed at kids often look like they're going to be a revenge narrative and often mm. become more about reconciliation and mm. forgiveness. And I think that's very strong in this film as well. And I think it's very respectful to the source material and mythology. I mean, it works with the the mythology 
in a way that's not condescending or second-guessing it, uh, in a way that, say, the Kung Fu Panda films did with a lot of some of the Chinese mythology in those films. Or, or we see in films set in classical Greece or, or even in ancient Rome, the films that blend mythology and, and reality. I, you know, I, I really appreciated all, all that as well. Yeah, I was very impressed by the visuality of this film. Like, so much care has clearly been taken into these films. Like, you you read up about Laika and they spend four to five years making one film, you know, and you can see all the tiny details in things like the the ship that's made of leaves and how it's exactly the same from shot to shot and all the tiny little faces and facial expressions that you have to make with every single um uh, figure it, it i read up i read a review where it was something like um the the studio uh films something like 4.2 seconds of a film in a week that's how much care and and work goes into every single frame of these films and i really really do respect that but i have to come back to the thing that cerise brought up which was i was enormously disappointed and very much had a problematic face on and flappy hands during the film um due to the fact that yeah it it, it is a film that's dealing with japanese mythology and japanese characters um who are all voiced by white Americans, and I have a big problem with that. I found it distracting. I found it distancing. I found it just... I, I feel like in, in an environment where we are at the moment where we're so focused on issues of race in cinema and people telling, being allowed to tell their own stories, people being allowed to re- represent themselves and their people on screen... I found it just very, yeah, the fact that you've got people like Charlize Theron and Matthew McConaughey and Rooney Mara and Ray Fiennes all voicing the the major characters. Even it, even Kubo, I believe, is played by an actor called Art Parkinson, who I think is involved in Game of Thrones as one of the various Stark children, if that's your jam. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, so basically all of the major characters are voiced by white actors. And it's it's the fact that all of the incidental characters and minor characters are all voiced by Asian-American actors where I kind of just went, no, you knew what you were doing. And that's the thing that really perturbs me, the fact that I'm, like, I'm... I, I understand that sometimes, you know, you, you need a name film particularly attached to an animation in order to get things going. A um, name actor. A name actor yep. sort of thing. I don't understand why you couldn't have just had one... One pick Charlie's Theron. Her performance, admittedly, was excellent as the very cranky monkey. I enjoyed her thoroughly. Mm. But why, why aren't Asian American actors being given the chance to to voice these characters that look like them? And it really, it also brought home to me when you know the when the lights went up at the end of the film. I saw the film in a cinema on a Saturday, packed full with kids, and I was just looking at all of the kids, and there were a lot of kids and their parents who were there very clearly because they'd stumbled across an animation that starred people that looked like them. And I just felt inside what, how, you know, just the fact that these kids are one day going to find out, oh, Kubo, this character that looked like me and he went on an adventure and did an amazing thing, was voiced by a white kid. And that really, ooh, it kills me. It really, it's, I I, I got really steamed up about it. Yeah, look, I I struggle with this, and I guess I have to acknowledge I come from that position of privilege where I'm never going to miss out on seeing myself represented on film. But I, 
I, I do like the fact that different cultures tell stories belonging to other cultures, and I think it would be a shame if we got to a point where exclusively we're only allowed to tell stories belonging to our own culture, especially when we get into mythology. I mean, I, I refuse to say The Passion of the Christ is a better film than The Last Temptation of Christ because Mel Gibson chose the correct language and didn't do it in English like Scorsese <laughs> did. I can't write off Hugo, which is a French film done in English, or the Kung Fu Panda films, which are steeped in Chinese mythology and they were done in English. Um, all, all the gladiator films that weren't made by Italians, starring Italians. Well, all the westerns that were actually samurai films. I mean, there, there, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of back and yeah. forth with all of all of this uh, across cinema history. And I, I think, yes, certainly it's fine to play with um, all the, the tropes of uh, this or that genre or this or that mythology. I mean, really, we're often coming back to only a, a sprinkling. Mostly there's only a sprinkling of stories that exist anyway and everything's a variation upon. I know some people, I think, say maybe seven stories. And this is the That's classic thing, this isn't it? The yeah, it's the, the, very, this the hero's journey. And it very explicitly yeah. acknowledges that at the very beginning. And, in fact, this film does something at its very outset uh, that acknowledges itself as a, a, a storytelling exercise. And we're, we're addressed. We're not necessarily entirely sure whom by at the very outset, but we're told to pay attention to certain things. Um, uh, words uh, which are echoed uh, about 10 minutes into the film when Kubo first gives his little presentation mm, in the right. village and he tells the same story to... It's hyper-aware of storytelling, yeah. It, it's the mise en um approach to storytelling. It's the Russian doll. It's nesting itself within itself, if you know what I mean. Just like Crimson Peak did a year or so ago when Mia Wasikowska started writing the story that was, in fact, the film. It's a, an age-old device, um, and yet something we consider postmodern, which we kind of consider to be something fairly recent, but it's, it, it, it is itself within itself, if you know what I mean. And it's, yeah, so that self-awareness we can take with us and give it, perhaps cut it a little slack because we know that it knows, but then we might also say, well, if it knows, why hasn't it done better with the issues exactly. that yeah. you're it's, it's It's kind of the thing where, like, I, I, I really... I really just wish that they'd taken the care that clearly they put into absolutely every single level of the animation. You know, these are clearly people that are very, very passionate about stop motion as a storytelling form, as an art form. I mean, they're, they're doing something that no one else is doing anymore, and I really, really, really respect that. But I also wish that they'd taken the care to, you know, maybe look at the story that they were telling and going, OK, who are the voices that we really want to represent? what this story is and what it's saying to people. And See, I think the actors yeah. did a fantastic job and I don't think the actors at all diminish the power of these characters. I mean, they're actors. Actors play different people. I, you know, I, I know I'm probably tilting on the conservative side here, but I do believe an actor's job is to play someone different to themselves. I mean, you know, I, I don't believe Harrison Ford is legitimately an archaeologist and, and I, I'm okay with Thomas that. Thomas Harrison. That, that sounded way more flippant than I meant it to sound, but um. I think the characters are still authentic and it's a film made for, you know, uh, it principally made for the, the, the country of origin and that's the American audience. Well, I would be very curious to know that when this film is exported to, let's say, especially Asian marketplaces, whether the local voice, te- mm. well, voice talent local to those marketplaces, if, if it's dubbed. I'm uh, sure it will yeah, be. I, I would mean, presume so. And then, you know, Asian right, markets don't hesitate to dub everything no. into their own voices. And, no. You know, well, same in have, Europe and... and, and, and well, that comes this way too. We get yeah. most Studio Ghibli films dubbed by Hollywood talent, which I find just appalling because I, I can't. I find that actually un, them unwatchable. But perhaps I'm just being a bit precious as well. Yeah. Are we lucky in Melbourne? We tend to get the option. We, we do get the option. Um, I, just one. While still in this area, I just noted that the studio is actually named. An American studio is named after the first 
Russian dog put into space. Yes. Yes. So it's already you know, getting a little... Uh, you know, it's specifically referencing something that's extremely precious to another culture in terms of technological accomplishment. That's a yeah. bit cheeky. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like if the film at least can get us asking questions about... Is animation colorblind? This th- 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 this was a question I saw crop up in actually an interview with with the director Travis Knight, who is actually also the founder of Leica. Um, and he was asked, you know, is do you think it's okay that this has happened? Can animation be colorblind? He believes it can be. He he used the example that oh no, we we used actors of color in previous films where they were ostensibly playing you know white characters, and no one complained about that sort of thing. And I kind of get where you're coming from, but I also feel like in the climate that we're in now where race is so extremely important in terms of of representation and what we see on screen, I think we do need to really heavily look at things like this and go, can well, can, can animation be colourblind? Is, is that even a question that we should be asking? Would you, would you have liked... I mean, it, let's say we had Asian Americans doing the voices. Would you want them with an accent or speaking their normal American accents? Well, see, that's the thing. You, you would have them speaking their regular American accents because this is obviously an American... Um, uh, uh, studio mm. putting forth an American style of story using Asian characters. And I think that's the thing. I, 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 I think where the problem in the US is coming and where a lot of the commentary is coming from are people are just like, well, look, there's plenty of Asian American actors out here who want the work then they're not getting voice work anywhere else. No one, no, no one else is asking Asian American actors most of the time to voice white characters in, say, Pixar animations or things like that. You know, th- this is a story that's very particularly with Asian characters. Why aren't you having Inside Asian, Out, Inside Asian Out actors? Did. Inside Out did. That was a range of different people. Yeah, Inside Out had a range of different ethnicities doing some of those voices. Um, I've forgotten her name from The Office. Mindy Man- Kaling? Yeah. Okay, that's one, I'm sure. That's one. But th- that's an exception, yeah. Look, I think this is a really important issue. I think this is a far cry from Yellowface, and I don't think anyone's suggesting it's the same thing. Um, I, I can't... My, my feelings for this film cannot be diminished d- d- diminished <laughs> yeah. by this. Um, and, you know, but, but you know, and, and partly because we, we've seen... A, yeah, I, I can't write off Kung Fu Panda because Jack Black is in it, and I can't write off Big Hero 6, which is also set uh, in Asia and, you know... I still enjoy Spartacus, and yeah, or, or, or I don't innately have a problem with different cultures making films in different parts of the world. Um, yes, yeah, so I think at the least it's always it's always good just to have these discussions because these things yeah. that are problematic, uh, it is worth acknowledging that they are, and just talking through it. And let's just chart this sort of trajectory of this problem because um, will it be resolved ever? Not probably satisfactorily, but there'll be peaks and troughs along the way and and certain films will celebrate for their approach to diverse casting. I think the more awareness about this, the better, and we Mm. will see things start to fall into place better, absolutely. And the show's always going to address it. Yeah. This is our bread and butter, really. Yeah. Yeah. Three, triple, R. Tickled is a New Zealand feature documentary by David Farrier and Dylan Reeve, who both became part of the story they were documenting. The initial idea was for David Farrier. He's a light entertainment television journalist. He specialises in pop culture and curiosity stories. The initial idea was for him to do a piece on the world of competitive endurance tickling. A strange phenomenon he stumbled across online. It involves videos of young men being restrained and then being tickled by other young men. 
After his initial inquiries to the company that produces the videos, Farrier started receiving abusive emails followed by legal threats. The resulting documentary is partly an investigative piece into the people behind the videos and partly an act of defiance against bullying and harassment. It does look into the nature of tickling as a fetish, but this is mostly a film about exposing exploitation. Wow, you don't really see this film coming, do you? Cerise, you're from New Zealand. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Explain this to us. Explain? What, uh, hmm. And we will try. We won't, the, the, part of the joy of this film are the revelations that unfold, yeah. so we're not going to give away a heap. No, no. Uh, the New Zealand angle, I, I hasten to add, isn't... terribly important. No, it's not at all. No. Just happens to be a uh, New Zealand-based, an Auckland-based journalist who is just curious after seeing, I think, just some video online in which uh, well-built young men tickle restrained other well-built young men, most of them seemingly wearing Adidas-branded sports garb, though that's not really delved deeply into. Um, But it it comes up once or twice. It looks like they're being officially sponsored. Yes, because... Ostensibly, this is a sport, but we never really get a sense that it, it is because there doesn't seem to be anyone officiating. We never see someone in shot when we see these little odd video clips, uh, say, you know, a referee, umpire-type person. Uh, gosh, what can we say about this without going down uh, too many rabbit holes we'd rather audiences went down for themselves? It's... It's such an interesting film um, on the run, though, isn't it? Like, it feels like it feels like they weren't even intending to make a film about this. But no, which can only mean that the initial scenes were recreations because they wouldn't have started filming at the very outset, like when mm. David's at a, a computer at his office uh, just looking, you know, Googling... Uh, what, what, what is it? Just ticklish... Competitive uh, endurance tickling. endurance yeah. tickling. Yeah. Uh, let's just say that he, he certainly gets a lot more than he bargain for we know we know that uh, stereotypically americans are litigious people um <laughs> and that we, we don't generally expect people in new zealand to be hounded by american lawyers um for almost anything really i mean why bother i think that's the, the weird thing their very initial very innocent inquiries were almost mm. immediately the response was insane well abusive mm. and and very importantly for the the overall uh, thrust of this film is extremely homophobic. Mm. Uh, The the protagonist, let's call him, let's say the director Mm. star outs himself at the very beginning. He he says one of the reasons he was interested in this whole phenomenon was that it all, in his words, appeared a bit gay, which he found it all the odder that he was then receiving this vitriolic homophobic abuse sent to him daily, uh, especially as it had the veneer of a uh, legalese um, that, that rap- it was wrapped in, and and before terribly long, there are people wanting to meet him and put him off pursuing his investigation into something that really isn't that deep an investigation at that stage anyway. The the fact that they almost immediately sent representatives from Los Angeles to Auckland, Mm. flew three people first class to basically come to him and say, no, here's all the reasons why you can't do this and this would be a bad idea for you and essentially threaten him in person. Mm. I mean, you realise immediately whoever's behind all this has some serious dosh. Yes, some serious... uh, Privileged status. I um, think that's well. It's someone who gets off on control. I mean, that's what yes. I think. What I really liked the couple of things I liked is the way the film looked at the idea of what tickling is and how that's a fetish. It's it's, it's a light form of bondage. Someone has control over somebody else, and that's part of the, the nature of this fetish. Uh, and, uh, and like so, so many. 
but what kind of happens in the larger picture of the way this person or people controlling this tickling video empire is they're kind of also getting off on their insane power trip that they have controlling this material and the way it's being discussed. Yes, and... Uh, gosh, I'm, 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 but it moves from fetish to psychotic, borderline... Oh, there's no borderline. Psychotic, but yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, psychotic yeah, behaviour. Yeah, sort of trying to... My every impulse is to, to uh, say more than I think is ideal for in order for people to really feel the full effect of a film that is utterly unpredictable, really. Uh, gosh, this is a real doozy. To, <laughs> it's a real challenge to talk about this without talking about it. Yeah. Know I th- what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Yeah, I, I, the, the things that really stuck out for me, which I think we've been talking just in terms of general themes that the film kind of throws up, it's the fact that a lot of the victims... Of of what what is happening with this this competitive tickling, do tend to be young men who are poor, like in in extreme need of money from poor areas of America, who come from either like MAA fighting or military backgrounds and that sort of thing. And that was the thing that started to get me really like really quite angry as as the film progressed where you were just kind of like oh this isn't just like a power trip thing it's specifically targeting very desperate young people and and taking advantage of them and and ruining their names in 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 in, in a lot of cases and i think that's the second really the, the second thing i found really interesting about this film is how well it mirrors i think a lot of the workings of the pornography industry in the states and how incredibly exploitive that is and how it sort of lures people with promises of a lot of money up front and then kind of owns and has power over these people by having control of video footage that's been taken and then what we see in this film is people agree to a certain extent and then a lot of stuff is done without their consent and, and that's when it gets very nightmarish for some of these these young men who are involved you know they didn't sign up for this and they get ta- they get tangled in a web f- far deeper than they ever i'm mixing metaphors horribly but <laughs> yeah. it, it's far worse than they ever imagined well it's an interesting charting in this film of the evolution of the internet and the evolution of uh, its power to disseminate material in a way that is utterly beyond the control of people who might dearly wish to be able to control it mm. And in those earlier days, where we see some very low-resolution footage of early clips from, say, mid-90s, Mid-90s where they're, they're yeah. tiny little things that you would have watched in a window within uh, your monitor. And whereas these days, high-quality footage where people are immediately recognisable, identifiable, and there are so many outlets for that, that footage you can upload to so many video sites, and then this material that you never wanted loose in the first place can go rogue very quickly and be more or less irretrievable and, and names and and reputations ruined. Uh, that, that, I think, is a, a, mm. just very interesting, having that charted in this film too, and I'm still just trying not to say too much. It's well, that, very, that's, 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 that's such a contemporary issue too, mm. the idea of revenge porn or celebrity sex tapes being leaked. And, yeah. and, and you know, I think we're still catching up with the discussion about this. That's the people doing the leaking who are the, the bad people here, not the people who make yes. the tapes. And I think this film actually very effectively demonstrates that. Um, that, you know, the, the guys who are featured in the tapes really are victims and it's the people mm. who are just distributing these without consent. The, the wrongdoers and the ones that we should be angry at and, and dismissive towards, not tut-tutting yeah. 
the victims and and definitely the people that we should be hunting down because that's essentially yeah. what what happens in the film. The film it's 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 the filmmakers desperately trying to find out who are the real people behind this. And I think it's it, it, it's quite ironic really that a film that is ostensibly you know began as as being about tickling and finding about this quirky funny thing ends up being one of the most sad depressing situations i think i've seen covered in film like all year i mean the 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 very final scene of this film is just like god i i didn't know what to do afterwards i was just sitting in my seat just going uh, except keep track of uh, the press from here on in because the story ain't oh the story's not over the story's continuing Go and see the film. We've said too much already, and we've got to get out of here. You've been listening to Hayley Inch, Cerise Howard, and myself, Thomas Cordell, on Plato's Cave. Indignation is on limited release courtesy of Roadshow Films. Kubo and the Two Strings is on general release courtesy of Universal Pictures, and Tickled is on limited release courtesy of Vendetta Films. Keep listening to Triple R. Coming up next is Jason Tickle Me More, but it's good night from us. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.